Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray with me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, Rock of Ages, be our sure foothold, our firm standing. Lord Jesus, you are the rock who was struck that living water might flow forth to the world. You are the chief cornerstone of the world's one stable structure. Spirit, build us now up into a temple of living stones. Amen. You can be seated. I don't know if it's a gift or a curse, but much of the time, we human beings move through our life, this life, with an assumption of stability. Probably it's both, a gift and a curse. See, we move from hour to hour, from day to day, from season to season, either confident or at least unconsciously taking for granted that our lives rest on a more or less stable foundation, that we walk on stable ground, solid grounds. Tomorrow will be much like today. Today will be much like yesterday. My needs will be basically provided for. Many of my desires will probably be fulfilled. I'll keep breathing, and I can devote my energies, intellectual, physical, social, I can devote them to making plans and improving my general lot in life. Often when we think ahead, I think we imagine our life as something like a path or or maybe even a well-built road. And we know, we're not stupid, there's going to be the occasional pothole, there's going to be the occasional obstacle that we'll have to figure out how to navigate around, and we know that sometimes other people crash on this kind of road, but for the most part, kind of tacitly, we're expecting a smooth ride. And I say it's a gift that we think like this because we could not function otherwise. If every waking moment feels utterly contingent, It could be otherwise. We wouldn't know what to do. If every day felt entirely disconnected from every other day, if there was no continuity to life, we would just shut down immediately. And that way it's a gift. But it's also a curse because it's not true. There are moments, hours, seasons in life where the assumption of stability that we typically walk around with evaporate like a vapor in the Alabama sun. And it can take many forms. Perhaps the body that you've always depended upon becomes suddenly a stranger to you, or even an enemy. Perhaps the mind by which you've encountered and enjoyed this world of intellectual and sensory delights begins to overheat, or to deceive you, or to twist in unfamiliar ways, or even to fade. Perhaps the nest of familiar comforts that you've built around yourself is whipped out of its tree by a natural disaster or financial ruin. Perhaps your own sins, whose consequences God graciously keeps at bay for a long time, finally start to crash around you. Maybe it's friendships or relationships which have buoyed you through this life and suddenly start to feel like stones that are dragging you down to the depths. Or perhaps... Let's not beat around the bush this morning. A love of your life, even an eagerly anticipated child dies, is here one morning and then gone by the evening. And in these moments or hours or seasons, we realize that the reality is we're not on a smooth road, not at all. 
We are on a raft that's barely hanging together, and the waves are crashing all around us. Stability, security, continuity, these are pleasant illusions. But they're illusions. The inescapable reality of this fallen world is chaos and calamity and entropy and death. And in these moments where we're tossed suddenly into the chaos and disorder that's always there, we ask or we wail, is there a rock? Is there some still point in this cyclone world? Is there some foundation that won't crack, won't shake? Is there some floor through which I won't fall? And usually our response when we ask that question, we go back to square one and we start casting about in hopes of finding or making our own stability. And we think the perfect relationship or the stable job or the padded bank account or portfolio or the ideal diet and exercise regimen or the medication or surgery which promises enduring health, one of these surely will bring stability. But you know and I know they're going to fail eventually. It'd be kind of funny if it weren't so sad this cycle. And one place that we turn for stability, especially when the material attempts that we're making don't seem to be panning out, is we turn to words. I'm supposed to be a preacher, and so I especially turn to words. If I can just find words that are true enough and good enough and beautiful enough, and if I can arrange them in just the right way, if I can artfully string them together, I will be capable then of speaking order into chaos. If I can just find the right words, we can transcend the calamity in front of us. And because most of us here are Anglicans, or let's just broaden it to literate Christians, um, we also turn to words. We've got a whole book full of them. Words that have gravitas and clarity and majesty. We have two of them, actually. We've got two of those books just full of words that are majestic and noble and true and perhaps... These words can help us to build some kind of stable edifice. And you've probably experienced at some point in life the power of the right words, the power of a well-turned, well-timed phrase. Perhaps there's been a passage of Scripture which spoke in in a moment just to your deepest longing and was a balm to your scratchy soul. But you've probably also experienced the well-intentioned but tone-deaf citation of a Bible verse used in just the wrong way at just the wrong time, used in such a way that it made God's very word sound false or the promise sound like a lie. I don't want to disparage words. Words have their place. They have their divine purpose, absolutely. We are creatures, you and I, uniquely gifted by God with language. And yet, words are not enough to hold back much less turn back the forces of chaos and calamity and entropy and death. In our gospel passage this morning, Jesus asks a question. Who do people say that I am? He's asking who the crowds say that he is. That is, the primarily Jewish crowds that have been crowding around this remarkable rabbi. And the crowds have been listening to Jesus. They've heard him teach. And he's not like their normal teachers. They've seen him heal And he's not like their normal medical professionals. He's fed them, but he's not like their typical fishermen or bakers. And so they start to have opinions about him, like you might have opinions about prominent actors or athletes or politicians. But since these are first century Jewish crowds, 
their points of comparison make sense, right? They're saying, here in Jesus is a new kind of John the Baptist, or here's an Elijah for our day, or for the more pessimistic among them, here's our new Jeremiah who's always railing against the present order of things. And they have a little bit right. They honor him. They recognize that that there's something unique here, something good, something true, but they're missing something. And, and it's striking that in all of the things that the disciples list, the people whom Jesus might be or remind the people of, they're all prophets. The people think that Jesus, this Jesus guy, must be the next big prophet. He's someone who has something to say, something from God to say. He has the words. And they're not wrong, but they're incomplete And so they're inadequate. See, prophets are good. Prophets are necessary. Prophets are a gift from God. Prophets give us answers from God, speak the words of God, but the prophets themselves are not the answer. Words are good, but words are not themselves the answer. Let me try to explain what I mean. The Christian faith cannot be prophets all the way down. The Christian faith is not like a prophet Ponzi scheme, where it's just words stacked on top of other words stacked on top of other words. At some point, you need the thing to which the words refer. You need the thing that the words are talking about. In terms of the philosophy of language, it can't all just be signs and signifiers. You need the thing signified at some point. So you need, we need the thing that the prophets have been talking about. We need the thing that the prophets have been pointing to. The prophets have been speaking the promises of God. That's good. But at some point in history, at some point in our actual lives, we need the thing that the prophets promise. You want the substance of the promise. And so Jesus says, that's good, but the crowds don't quite have it. He's saying this here at a hinge point in his ministry. Jesus is speaking to them in Caesarea Philippi, Philip Caesar town. It's, it's the northernmost point in Galilee. And he's getting ready to turn from that point at the very borderland of his ministry and, and turn his face like flint toward Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is a city where prophets go to get killed. They come and bring the words of God and then they get killed. And, and that's where Jesus is about to head. And the question is, is Jesus just one more of these prophets? heading into Jerusalem to speak the words of God and then to get killed. Is there something different about this prophet? It's good that he's a new John the Baptist and Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets, but is that it? Because we've had that before. Eventually we need something new. We need the thing that the prophets are pointing to. And so Jesus turns to his disciples, those who have been around him closely, and he says, who do you say that I am? And it is a question that you have to answer and I have to answer. Who do you say that I am? And as you know, it's Simon who is always quick to speak, maybe a little slow to think, but quick to speak. We like Simon. He's quick with the answer. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You're not just a prophet, Jesus. You're the one the prophets have been talking about. You're the Christ, which means the Messiah which means the anointed one of God. And, and you all know this, but, but just to recap, there's been this motif through the prophets that's been building over time of a Messiah, one anointed by God to be the great deliverer of his people. He's going to bring all of the promises to their fulfillment. And there are a lot of promises because Israel keeps sinning and keeps experiencing judgment. So this, this Messiah is supposed to bring return from exile. 
He's supposed to bring to them the the blessing of land and inheritance, the blessing of peace in the midst of enemies, the forgiveness of sins. The Messiah is supposed to be the one who firmly establishes that we are God's people, God dwells with us, and we are properly called his own. All of these promises have been piling up and starting to concentrate in this one figure. And so there's a lot of Jews at this time, a lot of God's people who are waiting for the Messiah, this deliverer. There's an anointed one coming, and he's going to set things to rights. From the prophets, we also know that this Messiah can't just be a prophet. He needs to be a king. He needs to be of the royal line of David. He's supposed to be an eternal king. He's supposed to bring the word of God, but also God's rightful rule, a rule which extends to all of creation, which extends to a realm over which no human politician or sovereign has access. And Peter is saying, sorry, Simon, I'll get to Peter. Simon is saying, finally, we're here right now. That's what I'm saying, Jesus. I'm confessing. We're here at the culmination of the world's history. Here you are. You are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the king in David's line. And as is, usual, as, as is usually the case with Simon, he barely knows what he's saying. His idea of what Christ is is going to very soon prove to be wildly off base, and we're going to talk about that in next week's sermon. But here's the key thing that Simon confesses. This is it. You are the thing. Jesus is the one to whom all of these promises that God has been speaking points. He's standing in front of him here in these hard scrabble hills of Galilee. It's the real thing, the real royal son of David. You are the rightful king of Israel. You are the promised one who's going to redeem and forgive and deliver God's people. You are the Christ. And more than that, you're the son of the living God and not son of God in, like, in the dumb, false way that Caesars at the time would claim to be sons of God. Peter's saying, no, you're the son of the living God. The God who is actually alive and working and right here in front of us doing something. Simon sees, and his sight is a gift of the Father. He sees that standing before him is not just another word or a speaker of words. Standing before him is the thing the words point to, is the end of the promises and their fulfillment. Human wisdom wasn't going to get there. It wasn't going to get to a divine Messiah. But God reveals to Peter, to Simon, ah, we're getting there reveals to Simon, this is the fulfillment of the promises. And this gift of insight that Simon is able to confess then comes with a blessing. Jesus changes his name. Simon gives Jesus a title. You are the Christ. And then Jesus turns and gives Simon a title. Thank you, Simon. You are now Peter. Petros. You know what it means? It means rock. Simon is now rocky. And when God changes your name, as he's done before with Abram, Abraham, Jacob, Israel, it means that he is doing something. He's choosing you for a particular task in his work in the world. And so Jesus says to Peter, you are rocky. And on this rock, I'm going to build. Now let's pause for a second. Why does Jesus choose rock as the name? Why not a cooler name like Zach? Sorry, Peter. (laughs) We're back to where we started this morning. This Christ, this Messiah, this royal Davidic son comes into this dying world of chaos and calamity, 
of entropy and death, and he comes to build something. He came to build something that would last forever. He's not founding a religion. He's not starting an interest group. He's saving the dying world, and he is building it from the ground up. And if you're going to build something in a world of chaos and calamity and entropy and death, you'd better build it on something solid. So Jesus is answering the question, is there anything solid in this world that is otherwise passing away? And he says, basically no, but I'm going to build it. Nothing solid in this world that is dying unless I make it. See, Peter is not the first rock. Jesus is talking about rocks because God has long been referring to himself as a rock. In the Old Testament, we see Yahweh referring to himself everywhere as a rock. Think of the song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. I will proclaim the name of the Lord and ascribe greatness to our God, Moses sings. And then immediately he says, I'm gonna, remember he's just said, I'm going to proclaim the name of the Lord, the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice. God is a rock because he's constant and unfailing and unshakable. He does not change from day to day. And then later in the song, Moses derides those who have scorned the rock of their salvation and who have neglected the rock who begot you. See, inconsistency, instability, volatility, faithlessness, these are characteristic of us. These are characteristic of the sin-filled chaos world we inhabit. But constancy and surety and faithfulness, these are characteristics of the rock who begot us. Many years later, from the time that Moses sings, Hannah sings another song. She sings it over her son Samuel. She sings, there is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one besides thee, nor is there any rock like our God. Years after that, David sings the praises of the rock. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. And the Psalms are packed with praises of the rock. We sing it every morning in morning prayer, actually, although the translation obscures it. It goes, Oh, come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us heartily rejoice in the... And we have the word strength in the BCP, but the word there is rock. Let us heartily rejoice in the rock of our salvation. You get the idea. God is a rock, the rock, the strength of our salvation, the constancy of his creation, the one who is faithful in a faithless and shifty and decaying world. So if that God who is the rock became, I don't know, let's say incarnate, took on flesh, we would probably expect that God-man to sometime be referred to as a rock, right? If, if Yahweh is a rock, if God is a rock, then the incarnate God should probably re be referred to as a rock sometime. Is he? Yeah, all the time. One of the primary ones we hear in Paul, Ephesians chapter 2, 20. Christ Jesus is the chief cornerstone, Right? Christ Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Jesus is also a rock. I mean, Jesus is God, the, the transitive property. You get the idea. God is a rock. Jesus is a rock. Jesus is God. Okay, sorry. I want to make sure that I'm not heresying up here. Um, the incarnate Son is also a rock. 
And, and now this, the term has shifted, though. It's not just this massive rock, this unyielding rock, this unshakable rock. We're now talking also about construction. And it's with construction in mind that we can start to make sense of why Simon is now Peter, why Simon is now Rocky, because the God who is a rock, our God, does not keep his rockness to himself. He's a rock who makes rocks. He delights to share his goodness with his creation, so he's a rock who makes rocks, who builds with rocks. So Christ Jesus is the chief cornerstone, but he's not the only cornerstone. The household of God, Ephesians 2 says, is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. So the Messiah came into this chaotic, whirling world to start a construction project, one which will stand firm and secure until the end of the age. And like any good architect, he laid the foundation first. He offers himself. God himself is the chief cornerstone, and then he lays the foundation of the apostles, They're the foundation because the apostles, with Peter chief among them, are the unique, spirit-empowered eyewitnesses to Jesus' saving work. They see with their eyes the death and the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord of the universe and the proclamation of the gospel that they've been uniquely qualified to defend and proclaim, the testimony that the apostles bear to the world, which you are hearing now, that is the sure foundation of the thing that God is building in the world through his Son. But God's stabilizing construction project doesn't stop stop with the foundation, right? Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build. And what might we expect him to say next if build is your verb? You're probably going to expect a building term, right? I'm going to build a temple. I'm going to build my palace. One thing he's not going to build is another foundation. You, You don't make a foundation to then build another foundation on top of that foundation. And you don't just build foundations forever and ever, right? That's just a parking lot. But he says, I'm going to build on this shore foundation, not a temple, not a palace. I'm going to build my church, my ecclesia, my called out ones, my assembly of citizens. Jesus is laying the foundation for a new kind of building. It's a building made of people. And those people, like Jesus the cornerstone and like Peter the foundation stone, are also stones. And Peter's going to say this. He's going to be the one to write it years later in 1 Peter 2. As you come to Jesus, Peter writes, a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. This, see, God the rock is using the testimony of his foundation rock apostles to make you into living stones in the project that he is building in the world. This structure, the church of living stones built on the foundation of the apostles who bore witness to the son of the living God who is the rock, this is the solid place in the churning world. This is the solid place that we are desperate for in our world of chaos and calamity and entropy and death. And you don't just get to rest upon it. You don't just get to lean on the rock. You're actually built into the rock. Jesus says this explicitly, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now if you're like me, when you hear the phrase gates of hell, you think of like metal album covers. You think of some like sinister hulking citadel of demons. Something like Minas Morgul or, or something along those lines. And that's probably not a bad image 
But the phrase gates of hell or gates of Hades elsewhere refers in, to, in Scripture to death. The gates that he's talking about here are the gates of the kingdom of death. And if you know about ancient cities, how they're laid out, how they're structured, you know the gates <clears throat> are the place where the elders sat and passed their judgments, which makes sense, right? You sit at the gates. The gates are the place where you decide who gets to come in, who gets sent out. This is the place where judgments are made, at the gates. And so the image that Jesus paints here is of the agents of the kingdom of death sitting there at the gates of Hades, passing their judgments. And the kingdom of death is hungry. It wants more citizen slaves. He's describing this unstable and dying world. Death looks out at the sin-racked havoc of a world and says, death is looking out at this world and is saying, that one, that one, that one, that one. Death is passing its judgments. We, we as Christians think of death as an agent, a power, a principality. And death is pronouncing its judgment upon the world. It's claiming God's creations as its own. But Jesus says, no. The gates of death, the judgments of death, do not get to prevail. Because I am building another house, another citadel, another fortress. I'm building a kingdom that cannot be shaken. A kingdom whose foundation cannot be undermined by the schemes of death. And we can know, we can know with surety that our foundation will not be shaken because our chief cornerstone, the stable point in the churning world, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of the living God, He has passed through the gates of death. Jesus, our chief cornerstone, has gone through those gates of death, the gates of hell. He's offered himself over to death. He has descended to the dead. He has suffered death. He has borne death's harshest judgment. This Christ, this Messiah, this royal king, he gets down with us in our misery. He carries our grief. He bears our sorrow. The one who made the world and everything in it subjects himself to its sharpest pains and its ugliest evil. When it comes to your suffering, Christ is not aloof. When it comes to our mourning, your mourning, Christ is not silent. He dies with us. He dies for us. And then he routes death from the inside. He goes through the gates of death and then he bursts the gates of hell from the inside. So that when John has his vision in Revelation 1, he sees the Son of Man, he sees the royal king with what? He's holding in his hand the keys of death and the keys of Hades. So when you look around at this world, it probably looks at times like the gates of hell are prevailing. It looks like the judgments of chaos and tragedy and calamity are having their way. And it may look like those judgments are final, but I call you today, brothers and sisters, to believe our Lord and Savior, the Son of the living God. Believe Him to whom belong judgment and power and glory. Believe Him, take Him at His word, that the schemes and the scourges of death are not final. The judgments of death are not the last word. He holds the keys of the gates of hell in His hand, and those gates cannot prevail against His church. 
The schemes of death and the devil have been and will be overturned by the risen Lord, by the Messiah, by the Son of the living God, to whom belong judgment and power and glory forever and ever. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, God says, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. We live in a churning world of chaos and calamity, of entropy and death, but God is building something solid, and it cannot be shaken. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn. Look to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to the Son of the living God, the chief cornerstone who has made you by His Spirit a living stone in His unshakable people. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Look at the earth beneath, from the, for the heavens will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment. They who dwell in it will die in like manner. This is Isaiah. He's talking about this world that's passing away. But what's the contrast? God says, look at the heavens and the earth that are passing away. My salvation, the salvation of the rock of Christ, my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Amen.